from Fastermind.co. This is Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. I'm Dane Sanders. Converge is a show about that space, that tension between the stuff you make and making money or something valuable from your stuff. The show lives where creativity and business collide, giving all of us the opportunity to rethink how we work and live in the digital economy. So much of life can feel like we're just trying to survive. We're just trying to get through another politically charged day where there's right and wrong, good or bad. Am I doing okay? Are circumstances going my way? In that everydayness of life, in the treadmill, the rat race, it can feel like this is as good as it gets. Well, my guest today, Dr. Ben Holtberg, thinks that we can do better. I met Ben when he and I were both speaking at an event and we had a chance to have a sidebar conversation. We realized we had a lot in common. In fact, Ben is the associate professor at the Thrive Center for Human Development at Fuller Graduate School of Psychology in Pasadena, California. I mean, come on, the guy works at the Thrive Center. And as you guys know, as longtime listeners and maybe new folks that are joining us, one of the things that we care a lot about here at fastermind.co and Converge is how do we flourish? How do we get the most out of our business and our creativity? So as we got to talking, it just became super evident that we needed to turn on the recorder and invite you all to join the conversation. And as you do, I hope not only do you learn some new things and become a little intrigued, I hope you take a little time to be a little introspective and ask yourself, am I just surviving or could there be more to life than this? And I have a hunch if you're like me, the answer is obvious. Of course there is. I can't think of a better person than Ben to help us think about this more carefully and maybe take some new action steps that we hadn't considered before. Ben Holberg, welcome to Converge. Thanks, Dane. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to kind of open up what we started as a conversation when we ran into each other for the first time and then jumped on the phone, but just to invite people into this conversation around human thriving. And you work at this remarkable center up in Pasadena, California. And I'm wondering, just to get started, can you share just a little bit about what is, like, why would there be a center for human thriving and kind of what is human thriving? How do you define that sort of thing? And why should folks at home care about it? Yeah, it's pretty amazing and daunting to be at a place called the Thrive Center for Human Development. <laughs> I think you kind of, you know, you have struggle with, am I thriving in my own life? There's a self-reflective kind of piece of that as you study. What are the factors? What are the things in life? What happens in life that allows people to really be on the path of thriving? And so when we talk about thriving, it's used so often out there today. And I think it's a great word, but it is kind of complex in how we define it. And I think the way we think about it and define thriving here is that it's not an end goal or it's not a state. It's not like you get to this place of life and you can say, okay, I am now thriving. But instead, it's a path, being on a path or on a, in a process of thriving that is being in relationship with other people around you in healthy ways and in exciting ways, being able to utilize your own gifts and your talents that bring you joy and really allow you to experience the fullness and meaning of life. And so there's an intentionality to thriving. There's kind of a self-awareness to thriving. But there's also, in almost as a prerequisite, there has to be a connection to thriving. And when I mean by that is a, a human connection of relationships with other people. And and so there's this connection to relationships, other people, but also to something meaningful in life, something that moves beyond yourself in a way that you feel you're contributing to this world or making the world a better place. Mm. I'd love to focus on those two things, relationships and meaning making, whether it be you're making it up or 
it is objectively meaningful. I'm sure those are dense philosophical considerations, but uh, we're not heady around this place. We're just trying to figure out how to navigate life better. Yeah, yeah. So talk a little more about the kinds of relationships, maybe in a contrasting way, like when folks are maybe thriving and not thriving based on your research, what are the kinds of relationships that seem to show up? So if folks at home are listening, they could go, they could kind of do a little mini audit or survey on themselves and go, huh, what am I surrounding myself with? And then we'll get to the second part in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the folks that are kind of showing these indicators of thriving are able to identify clear people in their life that they can turn to for emotional support, for esteem support. They can identify these sources of social support for their lives that allow them to really be able to face challenges, to face Mm -hmm. adversity, to get through difficult times. I mean, what thriving, what I think is important about thriving that I kind of actually, when I came to the Thrive Center, I was, when I looked at the job, I was a little worried about this kind of Pollyannish view of life, right? Right, 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 right. right. Like everything's, you know, the person who's thriving has no problems. They are kind of rising above in every area of their life. But I think actually the very opposite is true, is that what thriving really entails most of the time is kind of is our adversity and challenge and difficulty. And so what connection to other people does is it builds this support system to remind you of who you are, your worth and value as a human being that's not rooted in how you perform or or what you produce, but who you are. And that those kind of meaningful relationships and connections allow us to face very difficult times and get through them and also to experience joy together in life that you can't really, you can't thrive in isolation from healthy relationships. You know, I know that a lot of your research is specifically connected to elite athletes and sport. And I'm curious if you could give an example of that, those kind of reminder relationships in adversity that like maybe, again, a contrast where somebody didn't have them and what were the consequences and those who did and what, how did that play out? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple of ways to look at this. One of the powerful ways that I ended up kind of working with professional and elite athletes and thinking about and researching this group of people is because of the research around how healthy connection allows us to endure pain and how we assess challenges. So let me give a couple examples from research first, then we can talk about it specifically towards sport, I think. But there's this great study that is done by this researcher with the last name Prophet. It's a great last name. I I wish I had a better last name like, like that. But what he essentially is really looking at is how people face, how they assess their own resources and able to deal with a challenging situation. He places them, if you can imagine, standing in front of a kind of a long, gradual, grassy hill. And you're looking at this grassy hill and you're saying, okay, how, what is the angle of this hill in front of me? And, and so if I give you a little tool that helps you measure the angle of the hill, you're going to get it pretty much most of the time how high that hill is. But there's a couple ways to manipulate this in research is what Prophet did is one way he did, he manipulated this was he induced a negative mood to the person that was facing this hill. So you're looking at the hill and you see the angle of it and you still have the tool and then they kind of introduce this more negative type of thinking. And what happens is this throws people off. They're not able to actually accurately describe the angle of that hill. Even with the tool in their hand, they will overestimate how high that hill is. And so you can also do this 
by strapping a backpack on people's back and you put rocks on there. So you're kind of weighing them down. So in this embodied way, they're looking at and assessing this hill or maybe metaphorically thinking about a challenge in their life. And they will greatly overestimate how high that hill is. Now, the interesting part about this for me is now if I take somebody that is connected to that person that has a meaningful relationship with that person and I put them beside them, even under these conditions of inducing a negative mood or strapping a backpack with rocks on their back, this is a corrective experience that even with that view of the hill and that negative mood or heavy backpack, they will more accurately describe the challenge. The relationship acts as a protective factor for the people that are viewing this. Now, this goes on in neuroscience as well of people who experience pain and how they register pain and a relationship with another person that holds the hand of somebody who is having these kind of mild shocks done to them, that it buffers the impact of how the brain registers pain. Like this isn't just something that we're making up and we're talking about as being important in kind of a feel good way. This is really an important part of science is that we really are deeply connected, our brain and the way it works and the way we function that we are at optimal levels when we are connected and connected to other people. And so when you think about this with elite kind of high achieving context, which applies way across, I mean, it applies across multiple domains. But if you think about it in sports, one of the things that I've been studying and trying to understand more is this concept of what is called a performance-based identity of people who put their self-worth and value solely in how they perform. So when you put your worth and value in how you perform in competition, this all of a sudden creates this angst towards in order for me to be worthy as a human being, I have to perform or even take it a step further. What I found in my research is I have to perform well in sport in order to be loved by other people even. And so often this narrows people's focus in these high achieving contexts to really isolate to this kind of individual approach to trying to overcome this challenge. And they're cutting off off the very thing that they need most to endure adversity and challenges often by isolating themselves to just being solely responsible for the fate of their worth, so to speak. Mm. And so with athletes, what I found is that those athletes that do have healthier relationships and connections, they're able to deal with the disappointment better. They bounce back quicker. They are able to see competition as a challenge, not as a threat to their identity. And they are able to, to also identify a broader sense of purpose in life. And so relationship kind of becomes the foundation for almost everything we do. Wow. There's so much in what you're describing. I mean, I'm immediately thinking about my colleagues and myself. It's easier to talk about my colleagues and issues because I don't want to own my own issues. But Oh, believe me. I, that, <laughs> the famous last words in my class is, Dr. Holberg, can I tell you about my friend? <laughs> <laughs> oh, in quotations? Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I have a friend who really struggles with. Um, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, so on their behalf, uh, the goodness of my kind of highly <laughs> virtuous heart, I'm going to ask about them. But I know for me, sometimes I'm really driven by, like, I'll have a disappointment and I don't want that feeling anymore. And that is an incredible fuel. Or I have fear of competition and I'm not driven. Like if I compare the fuels of purpose in life versus the fuel of fear, are you suggesting that one fuel is actually, is it like 91 grade versus 87 grade? Like will people actually get a better result if they have a different kind of fuel? Yeah, I believe this. I think that the one thing about being really driven by performance outcomes only or being driven by the fear of failing 
that I have to work harder, push myself more because I'm afraid to fail or because if I fail, then I'm not worthy. That that is not sustainable over time. That that burns, we're talking about it kind of in that gas metaphor, that burns at a higher level in a way that can really consume somebody and burn out their lives. Athletes experience athlete burnout. They tend to get injured quicker. They tend to have a more psychological disruption that makes it challenging for them to perform in optimal ways. I think negative emotionality, being trying to be motivated by that, is it works in the short run, but over time, it will eventually show itself as not being sustainable. Whereas when we're and I would maybe even think about purpose as as less being driven by purpose and more being drawn by it. And that we when we're in purpose, when we have this and purpose really is, I think three key ingredients to purpose are that it's personally meaningful for someone's life and it gives them energy or it's almost like an organizing principle to give energy in your day to day. But it also has to have this third component that's often missed. And that is that it is connected to something bigger than yourself that makes some kind of contribution to the world. And I think we're all, we all are starving to make a contribution to the world and to be able to find something in our lives that provides that meaning. And there's nothing wrong with the pursuit of excellence or striving for excellence or wanting to be the very best you can be. But what fuels that does really matter. And that boils down to me to one sense of their identity, of their, the stories they believe about themselves, the narratives they've internalized throughout their lives. And when it comes out of a place of health, it gives you the freedom to then put it all out there and to go for it and to push yourself and to see, do the best you can possibly do. But it gives you that freedom without the fear that the result is now going to become the definition of who you are, that your human value is solely tied to whatever performance outcome there is. And that's the trap. Because the thing is, is if what's driving you is to feel worthy, no amount of success will ever, ever fulfill that need for you. That's so potent. It's funny, as you were talking, I was kind of flowing through different pictures of athletes, the kind of iconic athletes and their disposition in the middle of performing. I don't know these individuals. I can't, I'd love to, but I don't know. I'm, I'm curious how they would kind of add to this conversation. But I think of folks like, say, Kelly Slater in surfing. He seemed mm-hmm. to have, an, when he was winning or losing, he's a competitive athlete, massively so. But it, yeah. it didn't seem to, the world didn't seem to hinge on it. I think of Derek Jeter in baseball. Yeah. That's another example where it was just like, I get to go to work. and Or like even players that turn coaches, like guys like Steve Kerr with the Warriors up in Oakland. I'm just so struck by those examples. At least what I make up in my head is they seem to have almost a, a stoic, neutral, curious disposition that didn't just have them win or lose on a day, but you look at their body of work and you go, oh my gosh. And it also looks a little bit like if they had broken their leg early on, they probably just would have shifted into a different role and played something else or done (laughs) Uh, as opposed to folks who are just trying to get so much out of like more out of the thing than that thing can offer you. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think there's nothing more beautiful in life to see somebody 
really in their flow, operating within their giftings in a way that is a celebration in some ways. And those kind of flow states and moments are really critical to sustaining us and whatever thing we're engaging in, whatever pursuits that we have is that to be able to have an alignment of what we feel passionate about, what we're gifted in, to be aligned in a position where we're actually able to enact that and do that thing, that we can get lost in it in a meaningful way. That's very beautiful, whether that's in art or whether that's in music or whether that's in sports. And so some of these athletes who I think are able to really be present in the moment and experience joy, knowing that joy is not necessarily happiness or a feel-good thing all the time, that joy is being able to sustain kind of this overall mindset that appreciates the gifts that people have, has a gratitude about it, and truly enjoys engaging in it for the sake of doing, for play's sake, right? Not just for some kind of end goal often. And not that end goals are important, but if you watch somebody who engages in sport that way, it's a pretty beautiful thing. You think that translates like for business people artists like across other genres as well absolutely yeah i mean and i you know i i think sports gives us a kind of condition to study in which it's very overt this kind of competitiveness and the results oriented area and but the research that we're doing i think does apply across different groups we're seeing some of these kind of patterns within our even we have data from high school athletes and high school individuals that aren't athletes all the way up through professional Olympic medalists. So, and we're seeing some similar patterns here of, of like, what is it that provides meaning in life and how do people thrive even through adversity? And there is this element, this theme that goes through our research of when people are able to connect to some kind of transcendent purpose, something that goes beyond the self, and that they find a more global sense of a worth and value that's connected to that purpose, that they tend to show more just have not only happier lives, but more meaningful lives. And, you know, I think that's a question that we have to ask ourselves is what is thriving for us? And then distinguishing between what is thriving and what is success? Like what does personal success look like for me? And then what informs that success? Is it, am I being informed by my idea of success from growing up in a house where I never felt I was good enough, that I always felt like I had to perform to earn kind of love of my parents? Am I driven to prove my worth and value? Or am I able to really want to be the best person I can possibly be because I feel like I have something to offer to this world? There is something I can add to this world, and it comes from a place of health. And that's the challenge, right, is what drives our motivation comes from a whole history of relationships. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I When I think about times when I am kind of in my own way or not flourishing, not thriving, and by definition, what I mean by that is if I were to step out of myself and look at myself and give myself a report card and said, am I fully alive? If I'm fully present, am I fully engaged with the moment? The times when I'm not, I tend to have forgotten some pieces, or I seem to be driven by something, like you say, almost deeper than I can see, pretty subconscious. Uh, And it could be something happened when I was young, or who knows, I'll ask my therapist, but (laughs) my sense is that I can become conflicted. Like if I forget why I'm doing it, what my meaning or purpose is, or if I lose track of some of these 
key core relationships or just circumstances aren't going my way, like cash flow is tight and I want to compromise the kind of relationships and meaning that I was initially engaged with and trade that in for something cheaper just so I can get by in a given day. Yeah. Can you just comment a little bit about those moments? Because I know folks that are listening at home, this is fascinating and a little other world because if they're not winning you know, their fifth World Series in their first eight years in the league. <laughs> it can yeah. feel a little bit like, look, dude, I'm just trying to make rent. And right, right, the, right. what you're describing is for is for superhumans, not for me. Talk to us on that. Yeah. I mean, I think when we talk about connecting to this kind of sense of purpose, it's almost becomes like a compass for us. It's our true north. It's what we, when our back is against the wall and we are facing challenging times, what do we turn to? If we turn to a model of Really, if we turn towards just the model of having to be affirmed through our success, that's not going to be sustainable in the darkest times of our life or the difficult times of our life or when things are down. And because the lows are always lower than the highs are higher in that Mm. model. And I think, but when we are able to kind of orient ourselves around this more meaningful purpose in our life, um, you know, when my back's against the wall and I have to ask myself, what is my true motivation? Like, where am I drawing inspiration in my life? You know, right now, you know, for me, there's a part of this that I would uh, think immediately of my three and a half year old son, you know, that wanting to create a better world for him in which he can thrive, in which his gifts can be appreciated. And, and that brings a lot of meaning meaning to me as a dad to say I can get behind that and I can find motivation when I need to around that's around purpose when it's around performance that can I can really turn self-focused at that point and feel sorry for myself or shame myself and or try to take more control and but those patterns of, of really trying to motivate myself to shame or trying to take more control or whatever it is or blaming other people those things can really force you even that just take you on a further spiral downward. And so those are things that I should mention that can be really helpful is I think when you have this healthy sense of identity and understanding of who you are, you're able to engage in a give and take relationship with other people. You're able to self-care when you need to. You're able to push yourself when you need to. But when you are coming out of this kind of performance-based identity, you tend to really do these four things. There's a great guy I collaborate here named Terry Hargrave, and he has talked about this in his book around restoration therapy. But he says the tendencies are for people to either shame, blame, control, or create chaos in their life. And I've seen this with the athletes that I work with. So let me say, give say this. Say this again. Shame, blame. Shame, blame, control, or create chaos. And these are unhealthy coping patterns for feeling really a, this threat to your sense of self or identity. And he says at the core of identity is that every person deserves is what he would use is love and trustworthiness. And love is the sense of uniqueness and value as a human being. And trustworthiness is a sense of stability and predictability. And when there's threats or what he calls violations of love and trustworthiness, that's when people can tend to do shame, blame, control and chaos. And so I can, for example, let me give you an example of this athlete. And we see this in our data, an athlete who has trained their whole life and pushed their for this one moment in time of the Olympic Games. And they get to the Olympic Games and they don't perform up to what they really thought they could or wanted to. And after that Olympic game is over, this really high level of shame of like, 
this isn't just that I had a bad performance. This is that I'm a bad human being. And the self-talk around that is, I can't believe you let everybody down around you. You let your parents down. You let your family down. You let your teammates down. You are a worthless human being. This is actually quite common with a lot of the high achieving athletes. And this is what has made a lot of the national news lately around dealing with depression and anxiety and difficulty that a lot of athletes are starting to talk about this experience of shame. And then alongside that often comes then control like, okay, so if I did miserable, I didn't perform well, I'm going to shame myself enough to where I can now next time this is not going to happen again, I won't be embarrassed again. So I'm going to take control of every aspect of my life, I'm going to push harder, I'm going to work out more, I'm going to cut out relationships and fun and enjoyment in life, because my focus has to be razor sharp, just on so I don't experience this shame. This is like the coach who says, I want you to remember this moment right now, how you feel, how you let everybody down, how disappointed you are so you never experience it again. Now, the problem with that is shame is very toxic in the brain, and it literally is inversely related to really the ability to utilize the motor kind of skills in the brain to actually carry out the task you want to carry out. It overrides, it takes over. And so that's what shame can do. It's not a healthy motivation, but that shame and control can tend to go together. But there's also those people who instead of turning the anger inward, they use blame and they turn it outward. So now their failure is everybody else's fault. The coach should have put me in, the referee made a mistake. I shouldn't have got sick. My partner stressed me out. Whatever it is, that anger gets turned outwards to blame everybody else because it's safer to blame everybody else than it is to deal with your own failure. And then the chaos part comes in where people tend to self-sabotage. This is often where you see numbing through drug abuse or alcohol abuse or really trying to just, and maybe even a better word than create chaos is also withdraw or, or pull back or to distract um, or avoid. Um, and the control front, talk about that one too. And so the control is more like, I'm just going to push harder. I'm going to take, I'm going to control every aspect of my life so that there's no mm, possible factors that are going to intervene. And so those are the people who just kind of push harder and they try to use it as motivation to push harder. I'll be back with the rest of the conversation right after this short break. Have you invested in conferences or workshops that left you empty-handed? There was great content and you had great ideas about what to go do with it, but no change actually happened. That's not okay. At Go Summit, we're committed to helping you take action. To do that, we add personalized coaching and customized marching orders alongside the inspiring speakers, amazing location, and fun networking events. Honestly, there's nothing quite like it. Register today before tickets sell out at fastermind.co forward slash Go Summit. This is so good. So as I'm tracking our conversation, I think about when people are thriving, they tend to have these like tight ties of relationship that remind them or call them out to who they are beyond their performance, uh, maybe call them to a higher purpose. And then in contrast, we have these folks that I can relate to a lot of these things. And I'm guessing some people have a leaning towards shame over blame or blame over shame or control That's or right. chaos. Yeah. But as we turn the corner for home in this conversation and we think about like, how does somebody, if someone's at home and they're listening, they're like, man, I do beat myself up a ton. Or man, I do have, I tend to have a tendency of every problem is other people's fault <laughs> or I'm a control freak or my life feels chaotic or whatever. And they want to get to a place of rich relationships that 
draw to a deeper purpose in life and have that be a primary fuel. I guess the two last questions are, how do they make a reversal? Like, what are the initial steps? Because this isn't a quick fix, I'm guessing. But what are some concrete things someone can do? And what could life concretely look like if they did? Yeah. So like you said, Dane, I mean, really identity work is kind of a long process. It's ongoing. It's deep work. So it does, you know, I think it does take time, but I think there's lots of practical ways we can begin to address these in our lives. I think the first step is really to kind of take stock and note of what is the meaningful things in your life? Like, what do you say you're about? What do you say you want to be about? You know, for me, I would say, you know, relationships are really core to my life. I want to be there for my spouse. I want to be there for my son. This is, I value that those family relationships. But then I have to step back and say, what am I actually doing on the day to day that is, that demonstrates that I value this? Because when there's an incongruence between what you say is meaningful mm. or what you connect with as, as your purpose and meaningful, and then the day to day that you do, it, there's always going to be anxiety mm. there. Because you're always going to be stuck in this place of like, this is what I'm about, but this isn't really how I'm living my life. Mm. And so I think the first part is to take stock of that. What is meaningful in life? What legacy do you want to leave with your life? How do you want to contribute to society? And that purpose and understanding that are what even we might refer to as kind of your own personal truth of who you are, that identifying that becomes a really important point because then what you can start to recognize is when you're swaying from that and um, paying attention to that. I think also self-awareness is, the second thing I would say is self-awareness of really starting to understand what are your tendencies when you feel inadequate, when you feel unworthy, to be able to start to recognize the context around that. You know, all of us have this experience. I know sometimes when I walk into a room with a bunch of researchers, especially early on, and people are talking about all this kind of academic publication and research, I found myself in those moments feeling insecure and then doing like a name drop or like, you know, like, just so you notice, guys, I'm important. Like, (laughs) You know, here's what I've done. I belong here. And not that that's not important to be proud of what you do. What I've recognized is when I feel that sense of reactivity or insecurity, I have to step back and say, where's that coming from? It's coming from feeling insecure about my sense of worth and value and predictability. And so uh, what Terry's work has done here, he has identified this four-step process that I think really is a great, easy tool to begin to implement in our daily life. And he says the first thing is to identify when you feel that sense of insecurity. And so again, he shapes it around love and trustworthiness. When I was in that situation, I felt I felt threatened. I felt like I wasn't enough. I felt like I was unvalued. So you're kind of naming it. And then the second step is to name what you usually do. So when I feel that way, I usually shame myself and I try to take control of it so it doesn't happen again. This is comes from good old training from being an elite runner myself of like, I know how to shame with the best of them to try to motivate myself. And then the third thing, so you kind of say when you recognize how you feel that moment, you then kind of name what you normally do. And then the third part is now going back to that first thing I said, it's identifying the truths. But I know that my worth and value is not based on how I perform. I know that that I do have something unique to offer to the world. I do know that that person's success is not a threat 
to my purpose and who I am. And then the fourth thing is then to identify a new behavior. What relationship do I need to engage in my life to help get wisdom for this situation? Do I need some self-care to step back? Do I need to make changes in my life? Am I? Is there something that this situation has exposed to say, well, you know, I, I actually haven't been putting enough time into creating my product or doing this thing that I say is meaningful in my life. I've been distracted by all these other things. So it's self-corrective and that kind of fourth step that involves relationship as well of really engaging into a healthy give and take relationship with other people, but also with how do you need to also, did you react in a way that needs to go back to somebody and apologize and say, you know, that came from my own place. It wasn't, is there repair that needs to be made there? And so that four-step process, I think, is a very practical way to look at when we talk about identity is like being able to kind of get into a rhythm of that, of taking note every day and taking time to pause and be aware of when we're feeling incongruent, when we're feeling in how whatever word you want to use, insecure or disconnected, and kind of going through a process to then center us again to the what's most meaningful, what the truths are in our lives, and then respond in a different way rather than just react out of our own kind of insecurity. Yeah, so much of this is just not just, please forgive me, I don't want to minimize this in any way, but I'm hearing a lot of techniques around kind of waking up to the reality. (laughs) So like notice step one and then step two, begin to figure out like where where did this anchor to and then reintroduce a new a new option. It kind of reminds me of habit development or habit is it a developing a habit of switching your fuels? That's a great way to summarize it. I would just add a little caveat to it is that it is creating these healthy habits, which I think are important. But when the healthy habits are infused by transcendent mm. meaning, then now you're talking about something mm. different. You're talking about virtue and my and what we've kind of defined virtue as not just being good psychological habit, but it has to be imbued or in, in are infused with some kind of greater meaning where you connect it to something greater. And that's kind of where a lot of our current work is going. And we got funded from a place called John Templeton Foundation. It's really interesting. And it's kind Those of guys are fun. amazing. The Templeton Foundation, they just fund the best stuff. They're so generous. And it's diff- like huge projects that, and I, I'm glad, so they funded some of your projects in particular. Yeah, they funded, we're just finishing up in a grant where we're studying kind of character virtues within youth and and how they're developed. And and then we just got a new grant to now try to break down the gap between the science of virtue and how it's actually practiced every day. So you'll be seeing more of this practical kind of application, more of this coming out of the Thrive Center over the next coming years, thanks to this generous grant we got. And Templeton is particularly interesting because they dive into these kind of bigger questions that allow for more creativity even or engaging something uh, that's meaningful, that's not always easy to study. (laughs) And so, so yes, I think that that transcendent purpose piece of the habit is actually a really important, that's the center of what we're talking about. Ben, if folks wanted to kind of start tracking this and reconsidering, like you mentioned, tell me the name of the book and author again that connects to the shame, blame, control, chaos thing again. So that comes from an approach called restoration therapy. And it's traditionally, and the guy's name is Terry Hargrave, H-A-R-G-R-A-V-E. Great guy. Is it scholarly or could 
people like me read it's, it. You know, I think it's definitely scholarly in, in the actual restoration therapy book, but then he has written several other books to go alongside that. I think one of them is called Five Days to a New Identity, even. And so it's definitely worth following that and looking at that. And then some of the, the work around purpose-based identity versus performance-based identity and virtue, that can be connected to Thrive Center as we're producing more and more materials for people to engage with. We'll make sure that all those details are listed in our show notes. And Ben, I can't thank you enough for our new friendship and for you just opening up this conversation for so many folks, because I think it's going to be incredibly life-giving. Any final words that you'd share with, if you're having coffee with a buddy and you found yourself in this conversation and, and they just needed kind of something to, an encouragement to have this kind of ring in their ears a little longer beyond the conversation, what would be a kind of a final thing you'd want to have in their head? It's a very simple message, but I would just remind listeners and really a reminder to all of us that you are worthy, that you have something to offer, that your unique purpose of what you have to offer this world is distinctly yours. And when we operate in that, that's what thriving looks like. It's experiencing joy in life, even through the most difficult times. But when we lose track of that and we get lost in this idea that somehow if I just attain this, I'm going to be enough or I'll find meaning in life, that will come and it will go and there'll be the next thing. And life is way too short to live a life on that treadmill instead of really digging in and finding what's most meaningful and what orients you in your life that allows you to thrive. But at the core of that is to remember that your worth and value is not based on how you perform, but it's based on who you are, based on and really how you're loved. We all need that love to flourish and to thrive. And so that would be my main reminder, take home point. We'll end right there. Ben, thank you so much, man. What a gift. Converge Podcast is brought to you by FasterMind.co, where we help entrepreneurs go from knowing to doing. Get started free today by finding out your FasterMind owner score. Go to FasterMind.co. Music for this episode provided by TripleScoopMusic.com. What does your story sound like? This episode was mixed and produced by Podcast Fast Track.